Spirit, we pray for illumination. Give us grace as we open your holy word. Let us see Christ today. Give us grace, O God, to see ourselves as well. And uh, we thank you, O God. Thank you for not leaving us as, as orphans in this. Thank you for giving us a word that comes from you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, please turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And uh, so it's been a few weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to be here in the Gospel this week. Next week, we will not be in the Gospel of Mark. Is that right? Because I'll be out of town. Uh, Eric's preaching, so I'm assuming uh, we won't be in the Gospel of Mark. But here's what we have today. We, we have a, a sermon, like I mentioned, on hell. But that's because as you look through the Gospel of Mark, you find that uh, this is the beauty of preaching verse by verse. It's very easy for pastors or preachers to just say, you know what, I'm not going to touch hell, right? Because I know it's, it's controversial and it might upset people and it's, it's just not, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. But the beauty of preaching verse by verse is there are times when things like hell come up. And so here we are today. This is Mark chapter 9, 43 through 50. Okay, Mark chapter 9, 43 through 50. Um, and actually, we're going to end at 48 today, so we're, we're not going to hit 49 and 50. David, you note that for our songs. Okay, so 43 through 48. And so let's read this, and then by God's grace, we'll look at it. Okay, 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your hands to go into hell, or Gehenna, into the unquenchable fire. Now, verse 44, that's a, that's a textual variant, so your manuscript, your, your Bible might not have it. It might have it, um, but is it, it is a textual variant. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. And again, a textual variant 46, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. And then verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, since it's been a while, I know it's been three weeks since we've been in Mark. I do want to take some time, just a little bit of time, to go back and remember what the context of this, uh, the conversation that's been going on, some of the backdrop of what's going on for Christ to actually bring this out. And the context is strife within the camp, strife within the group, conflict, bickering, arguing amongst each other about who's the greatest. Remember this? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And you see this, uh, it begins in verse 30. Is that right? Yeah, verse 30. So, uh, so yeah, he's telling his disciples this, and then they're arguing in verse 33. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? Your translation might say, arguing on the way, they're arguing. And you see that because at the very end of verse 50 of our passage today, chapter 9, verse 50, look at the very last phrase. It says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That assumes that they weren't at peace with one another. So that's what the context is whenever he brings this out. That's the first thing. The other thing is, uh, remember that part of this is about them recognizing what it means to follow Christ. That this is about total allegiance to Jesus Christ. So whenever you, for instance, in our culture... I mean, everybody says they're Christian, right? Everybody's saying they're Christian. But when you actually look, when you actually examine what's going on with their lives, with how they conduct themselves, and I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm just talking about like the general state of affairs. Are they committed to the things of Christ? And by and large, most of the time, the people that say they're Christian, when you, when you, when you kind of watch and examine, you realize, no, they're not. They're not committed to Jesus Christ. 
You don't see a lot of fruit. You don't, if any fruit, right? And so what Christ is trying to really bring to the foreground here is this, okay? All around them are people saying that Christ is not the Messiah. Christ is a deceiver. Christ is, he's, he's possessed by Beelzebub. He's not who he says he is. And so Christ is really trying to ingrain in the disciples that if you are going to follow me, it comes with a cost. And this flows out of, if you remember Mark chapter 8, so the chapter before this, look at Mark chapter 8, 34 through 38. Remember when he summons the crowd and he says, if anyone comes, if anyone wishes to come after me, and this is important for us, if anyone wishes to come after me, think of this, if you're going to follow Christ, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow him, follow Christ. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What we're talking about today is going to flow out of that. That's the principle. If you're going to follow me, what, is it, what does it mean to follow Christ? Total allegiance to Christ. That's what it means. Now, let's look at these. Okay, this brings us to these phrases when he's talking about amputating your body parts, chopping your body parts off if they're going to cause you to stumble and fall. What's he talking about here? Okay, let's look through some of this language. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out, right? How many of you, now ask yourself, men and women, I guess, you know, I'm not a woman, but men, right? How many of you have had your eyeballs make you stumble in the things of Christ, right? So is Christ here, and here's the question, here's the first question, okay? Because of that, what Christ is saying is you need to get a scalpel, and you need to pry, pop your eyeball out, and then you're going to have to cut off the strings that are connecting your eyeball to the socket, I guess, going back in your brain, right? That's not what he's saying, obviously. But it is what he's saying. It's, it is and it's not. So here's what you have with Christ, okay? You don't have any vague or... This is the beauty of Christ. You don't have any vague or pretty platitudes. You know, this isn't like this... With Christ, it's not this flowery, sentimental, lovey-dovey kind of language. This is grim reality. This is realism. He's saying the radical, he's talking about the radical punishment of an offending body part. This is hyperbole. This is exaggerated language. This is, this is exaggerated speech. It's something like in Luke 14, where Christ says, if you want to follow me, what does that mean? You have to hate your own brother. You have to hate your own mother. You have to hate your father. You have to hate, you have to hate your children. You have to hate even your life, and you're thinking of this, and you're like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense, because Christ tells us to love our enemy. How can he also say to hate our parents, right? He, he's not saying that. He's saying that if there's anything that gets in the way of you following me, those things have to go, similar to this, right? That's what he's talking about here when he's, de- when he's describing these body parts. Um, but here's what you also have. I want to point out this, okay? The Bible does not ever teach that the body is bad or inferior. This is important. The body is not bad in itself. Creation is not bad in itself. We, we spoke on this with the resurrection. Okay? But what you do have, so for instance, in the scriptures, again, I mentioned this last week, but if you weren't here, okay, in the scriptures, what do you have? You have a lot of eating. You have drinking. You have body parts being used for the worship of God. You have uh, the idea of working with your hands, being a, a, a laborer, manual laborer. That's a, that's, that's a noble profession. So it's nowhere, nowhere do you have the Bible teaching that... Um, 
Asceticism is the proper, the proper thing for Christians. Okay? Self-denial, yes. But it doesn't mean that the body itself has some kind of bad component to it. What you have instead in the Scriptures is the idea that because of sin, because of the fall, now these things that were good have been contaminated and corrupted. But we need to be in the process, especially as, as Christians, and especially in light of what uh, the resurrection brings about, this restoration, recreation of all these things. We need to be about, um, like Paul says, bringing his body into submission. Right? So, for instance, Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, Each of you must possess his own vessel, which is actually a reference to uh, the male body part, if you're looking at it in the Greek, but it, it can also mean something like control his own body. Each of you must possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion. Your translation might say each of you must possess his, um, or control his own body. You must control your own body. So that's the idea here, right? These things are stumbling blocks. These things can hinder you. These things can impede your, 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 your following after Christ. They can. And to the extent that they impede, he is talking about this idea of mortification. Okay? But here's the thing on this, okay? Um, I, I think it's an incorrect interpretation to actually take this and dissect it as individual body parts, as though Christ is saying something specifically, uniquely about the eye, the hand, and the foot. What he's talking about here, I would argue is he's talking here about the whole person, the holistic person. So the eye, yes, the hand, yes, the foot, yes, but that's because those components make up what it is to be human. And the reason I'm saying this is because in Leviticus 8, you have Aaron's sons who are consecrated for ordination. And when they're consecrated for ordination, they're anointed with blood on their right thumb, their right toe, and their earlobe. Their right thumb, their right toe, and their earlobe. The hand, the foot, somewhere around the eyes. But the idea here is that you're talking about in the totality, the whole person. Remember when Christ says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? He's talking about your entire being, your entire person. Allegiance to Christ, allegiance to God with all you have, with all your might, with, with everything. So the hand represents what you do. The feet represent where you go, who you are, or yeah, I guess who you are. Um, the mind represents what you think, what's important. So that's why when you're looking at this and you interpret it that way, it's, it's, it's like when Joshua, you know, Joshua's looking around and he realizes, okay, we're about to go into this land and there's paganism all around us. And you guys, you know, so it's, it's, he's almost like, hey, you do what, whatever you need to do. But as for me and my house, right, we're going to be totally... Uh, bought in, totally sold out to the Lord. That's what Christ is saying here. Okay, To be completely, to be all in. And also another reference for this to make absolutely, almost for me, it's absolutely certain that this is what Christ is talking about, is because um, there was a guy in the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Antiochus Epiphanes IV. A lot of times we never hear, we, we have no idea who Antiochus Epiphanes is which is actually a detriment as far as how we understand some of the scriptures. Because if you were a Jew living in the days of Christ, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's like the, he's like the Hitler. He's the worst of the worst when it comes to the, the bad guys, when it comes to, the, to, the, to, to wicked rulers. Because he was the guy, when he comes into Jerusalem in the intertestamental period, uh, intertestamental period, he comes into Jerusalem and he begins implementing pagan sacrifice and pagan worship in the middle of the temple. And he's forcing people to do this. So you are forced to sacrifice to pagan gods, pagan deities, in the middle of the temple. 
And there's this story that everyone would have known. It's actually one of the Apocryphas, the Old Testament Apocrypha, about this old Jewish lady who has four sons. And these sons of this Jewish lady, they refuse to offer sacrifice to Antiochus Epiphanes. They refuse to do that. And so because they refuse to do that, what Antiochus does is he starts chopping their body parts off. He chops their hands off. He chops their feet off. Sometimes they chop their tongue off. And the point is, is that they refuse to submit to Antiochus Epiphanes. They refuse to offer pagan sacrifice. You see that? So that's what Christ is talking about here. That's the context. Christ is saying, listen, when you follow me, you have to be all in. You have to be completely all in. And that's why, again, it goes back to our culture. This is so apropos for our culture, because how many Christians today are actually sold out for the things of Christ? You will rarely meet a person, am I wrong, who is actually sold out, bought in for the things of Christ. That this is their mindset. This is what they're about. It's about following Christ. It's about following Christ with my wealth, with my job, with my children, at work, how I work, what I do, everything. I'm bought in, I'm sold in. Complete allegiance to Christ. And this, of course, leads us to the next part regarding Gehenna, or hell. Okay, verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. So I want to speak a few things about hell. Um, as I mentioned, so until up until this morning, I was actually going to preach the whole thing, including 49 and 50. But 49 and 50, it transitions a little bit. And so I woke up this morning and I was, I was, I was doing a little bit of studying and thinking and, and, and praying and it dawned on me, you know, how often have we ever spoken about hell? I mean, in the old days, I used to, I used to, I used to uh, not be proud about it, but it was something that um, I used to always be a, just a, like a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I love, I, I mean, that, that whole topic is just strangely, unusually, um, I'm not going to say glorious, because we don't relish the fact that hell is real in the sense that people go there. But the reason... Hell is something that we need to talk about, and we need to reorient the way we think about hell, is because of what it shows us about who God is, and because it shows us something regarding the cross. To the extent that you downplay or diminish hell, you downplay and diminish the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. To the, to the, to the, to the extent that you diminish and downplay hell, you diminish and downplay who God is, as far as his holiness, his righteousness, his justice goes. So here is Christ. No one spoke more about hell than Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we have to realize. No one spoke more about hell than Jesus Christ. It's not even close. If it wasn't for Christ, you would not have a whole lot about hell in the Scriptures. But because Christ comes in, and because Christ speaks so much about hell, we have a lot, a lot about hell. In fact, there's more about hell that we have in the Scriptures than there is about heaven. Okay, so that's the first thing to realize. So when Christ is speaking here in verse 43, he says this. He uses the word Gehenna. Your translation might say hell. It might say Gehenna. Gehenna was a place south of Jerusalem. It was called the Valley of Hinnom. It used to be called the Valley of Hinnom. And this was the place where infants were sacrificed to Moloch in the Old Testament. This is, this is the place where Moloch worship was being done. So they're worshiping Moloch. They're sacrificing infants, babies in the name of Moloch. It's pagan worship. Josiah comes. Josiah is a good king. He's three of the 39 kings that are actually good. He's actually the only one that doesn't compromise of the three. So Josiah comes and he desecrates that area and he consigns that area to be a place of burning trash, carcasses, and dung. Okay, That's the Valley of Hinnom in the time of Josiah. He comes and he 
wipes out all the pagan worship, and he says, okay, now we're going to constant, we're going to consign this place to just a trash heap, a dump that we're going to burn, burn stuff. Okay? But between the time of Josiah and the time of Christ, somewhere between the later prophets and Jesus Christ, Gehenna became a stock image for hell. So if you wanted to speak about hell, you would speak about Gehenna. It was synonymous. Hell and Gehenna become synonymous. Okay, in the first Enoch, another apocryphal book, so it's not inspired, but it's it's an intertestamental book, and it shows us some things. It says, This accursed valley is for those accursed forever. So it shows us that in the times of Christ, before the time of Christ, it already was used being used as a as a reference for hell. Okay. Um, another commentator says this at a burning garbage dump. The maggots existed aplenty, feeding on carcasses and trash, and the fire kept smoldering and burning constantly all day, all night. You can imagine the scene. That's why it's a very powerful image. The Venerable Bede, he was an old historian. If you guys remember church history, your church history class, the Venerable Bede, right? How can you forget about the Venerable Bede? He says this regarding the image that Christ is using here. He says, the worm is the pain which inwardly accuses... Speaking of the conscience, the fire is the punishment which rages against the body. The worm is meant to express the rottenness of hell. The fire, it's heat. So Christ is using this reference. And Christ also, when he's using this reference, if you're, if you're ever wondering, okay, this is really, I mean, is this just, is this just random when he says their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched? Is this just, is this random? Well, it's not. It's actually from the last chapter, the last verse of Isaiah. Uh, Don't worry about turning there. But I will read this to you. So the last chapter and the last verse of Isaiah says this. So you can imagine the gospel of Isaiah, the fifth gospel, but it ends in this way. So there's a lot about Christ, there's a lot about the Messiah, but it ends in this way. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be in abhorrence to all mankind. So he's talking about allegiance, even Isaiah, right? He's talking about, look what he says, they, um, those who have transgressed against me, those who have not committed themselves to Yahweh, those who have not lived for Yahweh, lived for God, right? Because from the very beginning, we know there's only two. Think about this. Where are you going to be in 100 years? Think about that. That's a very poignant question for all of us. Where are you going to be in 100 years? And there's only two places, right? I guess we're talking today. You know, I guess there's another in the sense of when you receive a resurrected body, there's, you know, something else going on. But in reality, look, you have this. You're either, you're either with God or you're in hell. There's only two places. That's why you have references like you're either a sheep or a goat. You're either wheat or tares. And the point is, is that it's about allegiance. Are you for Christ? Are you with Christ? Are you on his side or are you on the other side? And what he's pointing out to the disciples is, what does it profit you to be on the other side? I mean, it's better for you to lose the most valuable things or possessions or body parts or whatever you think. It's more, that is more important than retaining those things, holding on to those things, and yet spending eternity in hell. And so when he's talking here about these body parts, look what's going on here, okay? Um, the consequences, here's the thing, the consequences of not following Christ cannot be more dire. The lines, the, the lines are drawn. The line is drawn. The die is cast. What side are you on? That's what he's telling his disciples. But here's the thing, okay? A few things about hell. Number one, when you read the scriptures, okay? Number one, it's been said that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Is that true? 
We don't. We, we know that, right? Because we've been very, right? We know better. What's the Scriptures teach? The Scriptures teach that God hates the sinner. Yes, the sin that He does, but He also hates the sinner. Because why? Who, do, who gets cast into hell? The sinner or the sinner? The sinner does. The sinner does. So you also have aspects like this, that um, today God is angry with the wicked every day. That's what the Bible said. John 3.36, the wrath of God abides on the unbeliever today. So let's ask ourselves, okay, why is this the case? Because I think this, so, so for instance, what you don't want to do is go around and tell people, oh, you're going to go to hell if this or if that, right? Or turn or burn, you know, that kind of stuff. That's, that's pointless if you don't know the content behind what hell is, right? Why is hell a thing? Why is, is in other words, is, is God wrong for throwing people into hell? You'll hear our culture say God's wrong, God's mean, God's, I can't believe in a God. You'll hear this in our culture. I have family members. I can't believe in a God who would actually throw people into hell. When in reality, the proper way to frame the question or the, to frame the statement is, I can't believe in a God who wouldn't throw people into hell. Because what kind of God is that? When you read the scriptures, you find out that God is just, that God is the judge of all the universe. Remember when Abraham goes to God, right before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham goes to God, and he recognizes, he says, God, you know, if there's 50 righteous people, and he goes through that, that number game, right, and he weeds it down to five, but here's what he says. Abraham says, the judge of all the earth must judge rightly. He must judge rightly. Abraham recognizes that when you're talking about God, one of his most essential attributes is that he is holy. You say, yeah, but he's also love. Yeah, he loves his holiness, right? They're not contradictory. He loves holiness. So anything that's not holy, anything that's not good, anything that's not pure, guess, guess what God's response is? Wrath. God is angry with the wicked every day. And so as we go through this, so think about hell. So hell, there's a positive component, not in the sense that it's good, but as far as the pain, as far as the torment. Now hear me out. Look, I know when I'm saying this, there's something where it's like, oh man, man, this is like a, this is not a scare tactic, right? This is what you have in the Bible. You have a positive affliction of torment upon the person. That's what Christ is talking about here when he's speaking of Gehenna. There's a reason why. Let me, let me, um, here are some of the phrases that the Bible uses about hell, some of the descriptions. Okay. It's a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessings of God, a place of torment, as we see here, where the worm assaults forever. It never ends. It never stops. Never stops. And the reason for this, very simply, is because God is there. God is in hell. Now think of this. A lot of times when you think of hell, what do you think? You think of demons running around with pitchforks and making sure everyone stays in their proper place. You know, if you get out of line, the demons like poke you in the thigh. That's not hell, though, because the hell is meant for the demons. And for unbelievers, right? So God is the one who runs hell, not the demons. That's the first thing. And because God is there, remember in Psalm 137, it talks about even in Sheol, you are there. Wherever I go, I can't run from God. I can't hide from God. Hell is hell. What makes hell miserable for the sinner, for the unbeliever, is the fact that God is there. The judge of all the universe is there. There's another aspect of hell, though, 
in the negative sense, there's a, there's a deprivation. There's, they're deprived. People in hell, hell is a place where there is no good. There's an absence of good. There's an absence of grace. So, for instance, in this, in, in, in this life today, even unbelievers, the Bible teaches that even unbelievers are blessed with sunlight and with rain and with good things. Even unbelievers. I remember when going into um, speaking to jail ministry. I remember a lot of times you go into jail into the jails and and uh, and of course, I mean that that obviously is not an ideal situation. But they speak sometimes of that scenario as being hell, right? But that's not hell. And we we said this before, right? So hell. So you think about what you have in this life. Even the people in the most destitute, most just horrendous situations are still graced with certain blessings. They still have. Let's say friends or, or a glass of water when you're hot or, or thirsty or something like that. You know, whatever that is. But there are still blessings that God gives people on earth. And those blessings, of course, are meant to drive us to God in thankfulness. But in hell, all those blessings are removed, utterly gone. They're utterly deprived of any good thing, any grace, any light, any blessing, any beauty. None of that exists in hell. So there's the deprivation of things. Um... And this is why Christ, when think of this, when Christ is speaking of hell, he speaks of hell in the most graphic, with the most graphic illustrations and words imaginable that the English language can conjure up. He is speaking about hell in a way, in other words, the, the, the language that we use and the language that anyone has ever had, right, doesn't do justice to the grimness and the torment of hell. It can't do justice to it. And so ask yourself this, is it fair? Because that's the question, right? Is that fair? What's up with that, God? Is that really fair, right? And of course, that shows the sentimentality of some of our culture and we're soft and everything else. But here's the, here's the reality, okay? When you sin against God, here's, a, here's two things on why, of course, that's fair. Of course, that's exactly what you would expect. Number one, when you sin against God, you sin against a God who is infinitely wise, infinitely valuable, infinitely beautiful, infinitely glorious, infinitely powerful. Everything we have comes from God. Everything we have. There's not a single thing. So every time we draw in breath, every time, even every time we form a thought in our brain, all of these things come because God gives us that ability, that power to do so. The fact that we have a ground to walk on today, the fact that the stars aren't coming down from the, from the solar system and crushing everybody, right? This is amazing. This is God's grace. The fact that we live on this side of the curse and we're not eradicated the moment we come into existence. The fact that we're all born into Adam, born in sin, and yet God has not wiped us off the face of the earth yet. That's grace. So number one, that's why, right? So when you sin, when you sin, think of this. When Adam is in the garden and he sins against God, and we look at what Adam does, he took a piece of fruit and bit into it, and we're like, man, that's not that big a deal. And then you see God's response to that, and you might think, wow, that's kind of, isn't that a little, isn't that overkill? Until you realize, what has Adam just done? Adam has just sinned against the author of life, the king of glory. And you see God's response. He now curses everything in the universe. Everything in in the cosmos itself is under a curse. And now death is coming for all of us because of Adam's sin. It's not God's fault, right? Hell doesn't exist because God is mean. Hell exists because God is good. God is just. God is righteous. And so when you're looking at some of these these, questions, what does that mean? The other thing to remember is that when people are in hell, it's not like all of a sudden they just stop sinning. 
Not like all of a sudden they go to hell and they're like, oh man, God, now I bend the knee to you. Even somebody brought up, um, not here, but earlier, in Luke 16, the parable of Lazarus. The, the, the rich man is not so, the rich man is not, God, forgive me, I'm such a, you know, I'm such a sinner. Have mercy on me. This is what I deserve. No, he's concerned about his brothers, granted. But, you know, even in hell, that's why uh, C.S. Lewis will say that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Because you see people in hell, and if the, if the stipulation is, and it's not, because the Bible says that it's been appointed once for man to die, and then comes judgment. But let's say if it was, and you're in a situation where, hey, Christ is saying, hey, if you can get out of hell if you just bend the knee, even in hell, they don't bend the knee. If they're in rebellion against God in this life, when God is giving them these gifts that they don't deserve, these blessings they don't deserve, whenever he removes all those blessings, you think all of a sudden they're going to be like, okay, now I realize how great you are. No, it's going to be the opposite. That's why when in, in, in the scripture, when you see them talking about gnashing their teeth, they're gnashing their teeth in hatred and in rage against God. So it's not like you go to hell and just stop sinning. In fact, your he- the sin in hell, your sin in hell increases. So, here's a few other things. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, this is a heavy thing, but here's the thing. You'll see in a minute why this is so important. So important. When you look into scriptures, think of these other places, okay? Typologically, type, when you're looking at the typology in the Old Testament, what do you have God doing against rebellion? What's God's response against rebellion? You remember Sodom and Gomorrah, as we just mentioned. He destroys it with fire and brimstone. You remember his own people, the Israelites, especially let's start in the north. You know, they're worshiping, again, they're worshiping um, all kinds of demon gods and doing all kinds of things. And how does God respond? He sends an army, Assyrians. They come into northern Israel, the northern part, to Israel, and they drag these people out in chains. And that's God's judgment. It says in the prophets, right? God is the one that raised up Assyria to go and drag his people out, punish his people, judge his people, destroy. And when we say his people, we're talking in a sense nationally and ethnically at this point. But there are people who are caught up in that, like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, who are true believers in God, but they're caught up in that, like Daniel. But you see, my point here is that you see that this is the response of a good God, the judgment of God. We look at our nation today. How many of us, like Calvin, Calvin would say that God, when God wants to judge a nation, he raises up wicked rulers. He gives that nation evil, perverse rulers. That's how he judges nations. And we look around and you see all these lunatics in office and in everywhere else. It seems like every, everybody that Runs anything as a lunatic and a God-hater. And you're thinking, man, what's going on here? This is God's judgment. Because He's a good judge. He doesn't just bat an eye at evil. And so the same thing is taking place eternally as far as our sins go. But then, um, and then of course Babylon does the same thing to the southern kingdom. And then Rome's going to do the same thing to Jerusalem in AD 70. God raises up Rome to come in and destroy them. And so this is the pattern that you have in Scripture, that God is a good judge. He's, the proper, he's, a, he's, a, he's a holy judge. You can't bribe him. You, you can't buy him off. And he doesn't overlook evil. So now if you're a human being born in sin, sin is all we've ever known, and this is the kind of God who exists, now we have a significant issue. Do we not? We have a big problem. And that's the point. That's why people don't want to talk about hell. That's why a lot of times liberal Christians will try to say, well, hell, it's either, it's either just a, a mistake that Jesus was making or it's some kind of like uh, spiritual place. We talked about annihilate, uh, um, annihilationism. 
That's why people want to go that route, right? Because it's just too much. I can't, I don't want to believe that about God. And yet, what do we have in Scripture? That's what we have to stand on. What does the Scripture give us about hell? It's a place, it's physical, it's spiritual, it's eternal. And no one spoke more about it than Jesus Christ. And the reason that's remarkable, that no one spoke more about hell than Jesus Christ, and I'll tell you why this is so important, to make sure that we have a proper understanding of hell. The reason this is so important is because Jesus Christ, as he is speaking about hell, knows that in a very short time, he himself is going to go to the cross and suffer all the affliction of hell in place of his people. As he's speaking these metaphors, as he, in, this, in the sense of this, this is a metaphor, hell's not a metaphor, but when he's using this language to express what hell is like, what hell is, he has to use language because our language fails. He has to use graphic illustration. When he's speaking about this, so when he's telling them, listen, it's better to have your, your hand chopped off than to go to hell. It's better to, to have your feet chopped off than to go to hell. Guess where he's going? Guess where he knows he's going? He's going to go to the cross and suffer the pains and the afflictions of hell. These things that he's telling his disciples, listen guys, you don't want to get caught up in this. You want to make sure that you're on the right side of this. Because if not, this is what you're going to have to suffer. Knowing all the while that he himself is going to go to the cross to suffer in their place and to suffer in place of anyone who follows after him. The only way, and this is the thing, this is the beauty of, the, of, of hell. This is it. Number one, you see that God is just. You see that God is righteous. You see that God is holy. But number two, if you don't have a robust, proper understanding of hell, then you do not have a robust, proper understanding of what it is that Christ suffered to deliver us from hell. That's what it comes down to. That's why anytime you go light on hell, you get a light and, and, and mushy gospel. A light and easygoing kind of, you know, well, what's the, I mean, did Jesus really do that much for us? Did he really, I mean, I, I get it, he went to the cross and suffered a few lashes, but I mean, right? The reason people think that way is because they've lost sight of how heinous and how horrific hell is. And this is why when Christ goes to the cross, and something we didn't really, as I mentioned with Easter and Good Friday, and there's so much to talk about, but you realize when Christ is on the cross and you see these earthquakes taking place and you see, you see this, this, this cataclysmic language going on here, this is, um, so look at what happens to Christ. So he's on the cross. Check this out. So he, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is he saying that? He's being crushed as he says that. He is under the weight, the full weight and wrath and judgment of the God of the universe because he who knew no sin was made our sin. Right? So he's under this, this, this wrath of God. And then it says... Um, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook... The rocks were split. Another account, there's other accounts. Darkness fell over the whole land. Earthquakes, the things that were happening, they're looking around, tombs are busting open. And you're looking at that and you're like, what's going on here? What's going on here? The, the language regarding this, this, the moon darkening or the sun darkening and there's darkness over the land for, for the time that Christ was on the cross, all that's talking about, that's talking about the judgment of God, the anger of God, the wrath of God. Against who? Against not Christ as the sinner, because Christ is not a sinner, 
but against Christ who is bearing our sin. It's falling upon Him. This is the irony in the, in the sense of how can... I mean, think of this. If anyone knew how horrific hell was when He's on earth, talking about hell, if anyone has ever known how horrific, just what it, how horrific it would be to be under the wrath of God and to suffer the absolute removal of God's grace, if anyone knows how horrific that is, it's Jesus Christ. And yet it's also Jesus Christ who very valiantly and courageously and heroically, He goes to the cross knowing that this is the only way to deliver them from hell. This is the beauty right here of the cross. This is the beauty of the gospel. You ask a Muslim, everything I had just said prior to the fact about Jesus going to the cross and all that, everything I had just said, the Muslim would say, Amen. Amen. Hell is eternal. Hell is physical. Hell is literal. Hell is also spi- every, everything. Hell is spiritual. All of it. Muslims in here? Yes. Amen. You, that's exactly right. Right? But then you ask the Muslim. All right, Muslim. So how do you get out of hell? How, what are you going to do to deliver, to be delivered from hell? You ask a Roman Catholic, right? Roman Catholic, amen, everything I'm seeing right, everything I've just said, amen, absolutely, yes, 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 yes. Okay. But what do you do to get out of it? For them, it would be purgatory, right? What do you do to get out of purgatory? Muslim, what do you do to get out of hell? Well, that's easy. I got to be a good person. I got to pray five times a day. I got to go to Mecca. I got to give alms to the poor. Roman Catholic. Well, I got to suffer. I've got to suffer the affliction of God's wrath so I can get out of hell, so I can get out of purgatory, right? That's not the gospel. That's not good news. The good news is you got to do it. The good news is you got to suffer. No, the good news is that Christ is the one who suffered. Christ is the one. The gospel is really this. It's, I mean, the, the easiest explanation, best explanation is when Christ goes to the cross, Christ who is stainless, unblemished, spotless, is treated as though He is our filth. And we, now that we're in Christ, though we are filthy apart from Christ, born in sin, God now treats us as though we're righteous and unblemished. And spotless. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel produces. That's what the gospel brings about. And this is why when you're looking at all of these things, you have to ask yourself, listen, there's so many practical applications, ramifications that come because of this. You know, you see, let me read this. No human mind can conceive of the power of God's wrath. Right? We see flickers of it in earthquakes, tornadoes, and ear-splitting thunderstorms. You see how powerful, you see the might. I remember when the tornado came through Clovis. Remember that, like 20 years ago, you remember that? And uh, remember that, Willie? Remember, wiped out the shop over there? And I remember we were driving around. Remember after the tornado, everyone's driving around, checking out all the damage, stuff flowing everywhere. And uh, I remember my brother, my brother said, you know, it makes you feel very little, very small you realize that there's, there's a force out there that is way stronger than you are. And, and so you see flickers of God's judgment. You see flickers of God's wrath, His power in, in tornadoes and thunderstorms. But these are nothing compared to the undiluted force of God's fury. Had you the strength of 10,000 devils, you would not endure one millisecond in hell. But God is supernaturally sustaining that person so that they withstand 
in hell. The wrath of God would crumple us. God's wrath is infinitely more dreadful than fire. So we use fire as an illustration of hell. But God's wrath is infinitely more dreadful than fire as the sun itself is more terrible than a candle. But the sun is fueled by the power of God. Better to be launched into the flames of the sun rather than the cauldron of God's eternal fury. If you had an option to be launched into the cauldron of the sun, knowing that you're going to be with sustained in the, in the heat and in the fury of the flames of the sun, that was one option. Or God's eternal fury, on the other hand, you would choose, I would rather be launched into the cauldron of the sun any day. Because God made the sun. If the sun is powerful, and Phil, you can imagine, I mean, how big the sun is and all this, how much more is God? In hell, every faculty of the soul is filled with God's wrath and every part of the body filled with fire. The heart, brain, eyeballs, tongue, hands, and feet will be filled with fire. Talking about judgment, torment. The sinner will realize it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and our God is a consuming fire. Now here's the point. This is what Christ went through. That's what Christ went through. Think of that. That's what Christ suffered when he's on the cross. You see how they go together? So on the one hand, you're reading that and you're like, oh man, that's, I don't want to think about that. But then you make it and you say, okay, yeah, but look, look at what my Savior has gone through to deliver me from this. You see that? This is the beauty. I mean, this is why it's, it's such a shame to our detriment as a Christian nation, or not a Christian, obviously not a Christian nation, Christianity in the nation in general. You never hear about this, right? How often do you hear about this? And to the extent that you don't hear about it, you're not going to get a full understanding and appreciation for what Christ has gone through, for what Christ has done. So, a few things to take away. Number one, right? Make sure you're on the right side. What side of the what side of the fence are you on? You can't straddle it. You can't be on both sides. Christ says you're for me or against me. What side are you on? The line is drawn. You're on this side or you're on that side. Here's the consequences of being on that side. Here's the beauty of being on this side. That you're following a Savior who loves you so much that He was willing to go and actually suffer that in your place. That's the first thing. Make sure you're on the right side. Number two, remember, no one in hell today, and I think this, I don't know, but it seems right, no one in hell today actually thought they would end up in hell. You go to people today, hey, do you, do, don't you realize they're, there's a hell? And you'll hear things like, oh yeah, I don't mind though, you know, that's where my, my buddies are or whatever. And, but then you actually wind up in hell. If they had true, truly believed the wrath of God abided on them, that the, treasure, that the treasures of wrath were daily increasing against them, that vengeance was ready to burst out on their heads at any moment, they would not have gone about their usual routines another moment. If you realized what hell is, if people realized that, they would not waste a moment running to Christ saying, Lord, have mercy on me. You are a good judge, a righteous judge. I remember years ago when I was talking to my mom and she was, um, I was telling her, talking to her about the doctrine of election and predestination and all of this. And you know, a lot of times people say, well, is that really fair? Is it fair? Is it right? Is it just? And then, and then you realize, you know what fair is, right? 
You know what fair is? Fair is for all of us, everybody, 100% of us, to be in hell forever, eternally. That's what fair is. That's what justice is. But what you have in the gospel is that, number one, Christ satisfies the justice of God against our sin. But number two, you have God in His mercy going and redeeming people, choosing people, delivering people out of that. That's grace, right? It's not about fairness. Fairness is all of us go to hell. What this is is grace. But if you think about people in hell today, they would not waste a single moment if they had actually believed that this was a place that was real. So we have to think about this. And then lastly, okay, lastly, um, when, when you look at some of the early writings and how they speak of hell and how they speak of Christ in the gospel and judgment, they speak of it in terms of the ark. Remember Noah's ark? So Noah's ark, what you have there, and especially for them, they're, they're big in a... Um, uh, they, they recognize that in the ark, the ark is made of what? Wood. And a lot of them actually went so far as to say that the cross must have been made out of gopher wood too. But they recognize, okay, here's, a, here's, here's an ark that's wood, made out of wood over here. And here's an ark over here in the New, or excuse me, wood in the New Testament, right? And so they're looking at that, and what does the ark do? The ark protects you from the judgment of God. And so that what they would do is they would say, okay, salvation Coming to Christ, think of it in terms of coming into the ark. The ark is Christ. They would point to the ark. They would say, that's Christ, right? So you come into the ark. And when you're in the ark, the fury of God's wrath, the fury of God's judgment comes against the world because of their sin, because of their unbelief. But if you're in the ark of Christ, you're protected from that. You're upheld by that because Christ himself went through that judgment. He went through that fury. So here's the thing. When we're looking at this and we say, okay, number one, we're good to go, okay? We are, our allegiance is Christ. We've turned from our sins. Christ is ours. I trust in Him. I'm following Him. We do it imperfectly. Yes, I get it. The disciples did it imperfectly. The point is, is He is, he is my all in all. Where else would I go? But then you look around, and here's the thing for us, right? So you look around and you realize, okay, do we believe hell is real? Yes, we believe hell is real. We checked out, right? Do you think that people outside of Christ are going to hell? Yes, check that. I believe that. Okay. If we believe that, has it affected the way that we go about our lives? Okay. In other words, I'm, I'm now going to the grocery store, and you start looking around, and you're thinking, man, all these people are on their way to hell. Do we believe that? We believe that. That should motivate something, right? That should motivate us to do something about this. And God has given us something to do about it. Go and tell people, flee into the ark. Flee to Christ. There's one who's delivered us from the wrath to come. There's one who can deliver us even now from the wrath to come, from the judgment of God. Flee to Christ. Flee to Him. Run to Him. That's our response. Our neighbors, our family members, the people we work with, all this this, this, this city, right? Flee to Christ. Tell people about it. Hand gospel tracts out. Tell people on the internet. You know, call people up. Whatever you can do to tell people, to warn people, this place is real. And of course, you know, by look, we get it. They laugh. Oh, yeah, we, you know, that's 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 nonsense and everything else. There's a really, and we'll, I'll, I, I will end with this. Did I say that a few times, Dan Zeisen? Yeah, he's like, yeah. Okay, uh, Tertullian, though. This is encouraging. Tertullian, living in the, the second century said that because of their doctrine of hell, they were mocked and laughed at and scorned all the day long. 
Just because people don't believe this does not mean that we're living in some kind of new society. People have always ridiculed this. People have always laughed at this. But in God's grace, people are still coming into the faith. They do believe this. They are waking up. And they flee to Christ for refuge. So let's think about that as we prepare ourselves to come to the table. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that we have a Christ, a Savior, who has gone to the cross in our place. Lord, we know that words cannot fathom uh, the horrific realities of hell. So Lord... We thank you for opening our eyes, and we pray, O oh God, that you would have mercy on those who are lost, those who are outside of Christ. Please open their eyes, Lord, especially those in this town, in our neighborhoods, in our midst, our family. Lord, please, O oh God, open their eyes. We thank you, O oh Christ, that you've thrown yourself into the judgment of God willingly to satisfy God's justice against, against us as sinners, Lord.